The theologian named Joseph Carroll was one of the members of the Westminster Assembly. He himself was a, a Congregationalist by conviction, and it was said by the church historian Philip Schaff that Joseph Carroll was chiefly known as the indefatigable author of a commentary on Job in 12 volumes, which is an excellent school of its chief topic, the virtue of patience. Now, I suppose if you sat down and worked through a, an entire 12-volume commentary set on the book of Job, it might teach you a thing or two about patience and perseverance. And I mentioned that, I mentioned that up front tonight to point out that if one was so inclined, one could spend a long time working through the book of Job. There are 42 chapters in the book. If one wanted to do a thorough verse-by-verse chapter-by-chapter study of the book, it could take a while. And though there may be a time and a place for that, inasmuch as all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, nevertheless, that level and that in-depth treatment has not been my goal for this Sunday evening series. And believe it or not, I'm not just saying this because I got three chapters in, and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do now? <laughs> that, was, that was my goal from, from the beginning. Now, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to approach it, but nevertheless, my, my goal for this series was not to be a, uh, a chapter-by-chapter through, uh, study through, through the book of Job. Now, so far, we have worked through the first three chapters individually, right? We've got chapters 1 and 2 showing us the two conversations between the Lord and Satan, the, the troubles of Job in, in both chapters, trial, trial, chapter, trial 1 in chapter 1, trial 2 in chapter 2, and we've seen Job's early responses. And then chapter 3 showed us Job's verbal response when he finally gave vent to his grief after sitting for seven days with his friends. But now, in coming to what lies beyond chapter 3, we come to a new section of the book of Job. We have these, these dialogues between Job and his three friends. This dialogue section stretches from chapter 4 up through chapter 31. Now, starting in chapter 32, there's a, a new character who shows up on the scene, this, this young man, Elihu, who speaks for a while. And then, of course, we know that the Lord shows up there in the final chapters of the book. But for now, we're in this, this dialogue section, from chapter 4 to chapter 31. And in this section, the pattern is that one of Job's friends will speak, and then Job will reply. In the, the cycles that take place here, uh, the friends Eliphaz and Bildad speak three times each. The friend Zophar only gets uh, two turns at speaking. And so what that means, then, is that Job's friends... Speak for a total of, of eight times. Three times for Eliphaz, three times for Bildad, two times for Zophar. And Job replies to each of them, which is a total of eight replies. And so we have these 16 speeches, as it were, in the 28 chapters that stretch from chapter 4 up through the end of chapter 31. And so as we work through this, this dialogue section on Sunday evenings, what I'm wanting to do is to bring out certain themes that show up in the dialogue section as opposed to, to working through it chapter by chapter or verse by verse. Now, I realize that in doing that, there is a danger that some things will probably not be covered. That will probably be the case. There might be a certain verse in the book of Job, you're like, 
Neil, you never talked about that. I'm like, well, sorry. Um, but what I would say is that that approach at least lets us cover some of the big material in the book of Job as opposed to not covering any if we never preached or taught on the book of Job. And so my hope is that even if we don't touch on absolutely every verse in the book, nevertheless, we will learn some edifying truths and glean some helpful insights into those themes as we go along. And so the theme that I want us to look at first tonight is the theme of proverbial wisdom. Now, by definition, a proverb is a short, pithy saying that expresses a general truth, something that is usually true. The book of Proverbs, obviously, is full of proverbs. Proverbs of this kind, short, pithy sayings that are generally true. And just to give an illustration of how proverbial wisdom works, think of Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, which say, Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. The basic truth being taught here is that bad company corrupts good character. You hang out with a hot-tempered man, he is bound to start rubbing off on you, and you yourself will become hot-tempered. You will see this hot-tempered, angry behavior modeled before you. Jamie mentioned uh, discipling people this morning, discipling people towards wickedness, right? That's, That's what Solomon is warning us against here, against being discipled towards wickedness. The lesson to be learned is don't be close associates with a hot-tempered man. Now, there is a lot of wisdom in that, a lot of truth in that. But then we might step back and ask, now, is this always the case? Is it always a slam-dunk certainty that if you are close associates with a hot-tempered man, you will inevitably, 100% of the time, become hot-tempered yourself? I don't think that's what Solomon is getting at here. Are there conceivable exceptions to the rule? Likely there are. But the general rule remains, and therefore the caution remains. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. And so proverbial wisdom is, is good and helpful. Indeed, Solomon was inspired by God to give us the book of Proverbs to guide us into wise and thoughtful living. But again, we're dealing with Proverbs, and we need to remember that they are Proverbs. We need to remember how Proverbs work and function. And if we don't remember what they are, how they work, and how they function, then we can easily misuse them and misapply them either to our own hurt or to the hurt of others. And when we read the dialogue sections of the book of Job and we read the counsel that Job's friends gave to him, if we simply read the statements as proverbial statements, and if we completely separate the statements from the way that Job's friends are using them and the way that they are hammering on Job, instead of faithfully comforting and ministering to him, we could probably agree with a whole lot of what these friends are saying. If we just read down through what Eliphaz says, what Bildad says, and what Zophar says, read the verse Think about it. Does this, does this make sense? Does this line up with biblical principles? Check mark, yes. Mark an X. If not, you could probably put a check mark by a whole lot of what these men have to say. They give a good deal of what we might call 
proverbial wisdom. Now, what do I mean? Well, let's look at some sample passages. Let's look, let's look first to chapter 4, Eliphaz's uh, first speech. So turn with me, if you would, uh, to Job chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at, at several passages, so uh, you might not want to stick your finger there for too long because we're going to uh, we're going to keep uh, moving around a little bit tonight. But let's look at chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. This gives a kind of a snapshot of what we're, what we're getting at here. Eliphaz says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish. By the blast of his anger they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for a lack of prey and the whelps of lionesses are scattered. And so I think the, the crux of, of kind of what we're going for here is, is in verse 8 where he says, According to what I have seen, those who plow... Uh, iniquity, and those who sow trouble harvest it. You reap, you reap what you sow. I mean, Apostle Paul says the same thing, right? There's a, there's a proverbial nature of, uh, of what Eliphaz is saying here, and insofar as it goes, it's true and right. Let's look over to, to chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, and we'll see this, the same type of thing functioning here. He says, call now, this is still Eliphaz speaking, call now, is there anyone who will answer you? And to which of the holy ones will you turn? For anger slays the foolish man, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen the foolish taking root, and I cursed his abode immediately. His sons are far from safety. They are even oppressed in the gate, and there is no deliverer. His harvest the hungry devour, and take it to a place of thorns, and the schemer is eager for their wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And uh, so you see, like, uh, like there in verse 2, he says, Anger slays the foolish man, jealousy kills the simple. Well, doesn't anger slay the foolish man? Don't you see people bringing havoc onto themselves by their, by their anger? Don't you see jealousy? Uh, people who are jealous, them bringing trouble onto themselves by their jealousy. Yes, yes, they do. It creates a lot of problems for them. Uh, Bildad in chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 really is, uh, as a whole, a lot of uh, proverbial wisdom. But let's, uh, let's look to, uh, to 3 through 13 in chapter 8. He says, Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? If your sons sinned, sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by our fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you? And bring forth words from their mouth. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? While it is still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. 
You can see there in those, uh, those final three verses that we read, verses 11 through 13, how he makes this uh, comparison between this, uh, this plant that withers before any other plant and the paths of those who forget God. In other words, those who, those who forget God are like, this, are like this plant that withers. Now, on the one hand, that's, there's a lot of truth in that. There's proverbial wisdom there. You see, Eliphaz, uh, coming, coming back to the same thing, I'll, I'll just give you the reference here for this. You can, you can look at this on your own if you'd like. Uh, chapter 15, verses 17 through 35 is another section of this proverbial wisdom that they're laying out before Job. Uh, Bildad uh, goes at it again in, uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 18. Let me, let's just look at a couple of verses there in, uh, in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. He says, Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out, and the flame of his fire gives no light. The light of his tent is darkened, and his lamp goes uh, out above him. Now, who, who is he talking about? He's talking about a wicked person. And indeed, the light of the wicked does go out. Right? You, could, you could put a check mark by that. That's, that's going to happen. Sometimes it happens here in this life. certainly happens in the life to come. A lot of, a lot of wisdom. Things go really bad for the wicked. And he describes, uh, describes the wicked being uprooted. And then at the end of the chapter in verse 21, he says, Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. Right, if you if you read the, the intervening verses leading up to verse twenty one, he's describing there how uh, how this how things go really bad for for this man. Um, verse uh, verse fifteen, brimstone is scattered on his habitation. Verse sixteen, his roots are dried from below, and his branch is cut off above. Right, things things go really bad with the person who do not the, the person who does not know God. We see the same thing in, in chapter 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 4 through 8. Zophar here is speaking. He says, Do you know this from of old, from the establishment of man on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is momentary? Though his loftiness reaches the heavens, and his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He flies away like a dream. They cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he is chased away. Now certainly, there's a lot more of this kind of proverbial wisdom that Job's friends lay out before him. But you can, you can see the flavor of, of what I'm trying to say. As we read those kinds of statements, on the one hand, those statements have a biblical ring to them, don't they? They sound an awful lot like Solomon in the book of Proverbs. The kinds of things that these three friends are saying to Job sound an awful lot like David in Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 35 and 36, David says, I've seen a wicked man, violent man, spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. That sounds, sounds a lot like what these three friends here are saying to Job. Now, years ago, one of my college friends told me uh, when we were discussing the book of Job that when he read through the book of Job, he said, I 
thought his friends were giving him good advice. And on the one hand, it seems that way, doesn't it? But on the other hand, there's, there's something else that's, that's going on here, isn't there? What these men were essentially doing was they were taking proverbial wisdom, biblical proverbial wisdom, and they were weaponizing it and using it as a club to beat up on Job, who was a godly man, who was suffering because of the malice of Satan and the righteous permission of God. Now, what was going on here? So much of what they were saying was true. But, nevertheless, they were misconstruing the truth and misapplying the truth. To borrow the words of, of the, uh, the Scottish uh, author of the, the lectures on Job, uh, I guess these were probably first delivered, but he said they had good intentions, but were miscarrying in their way of dealing with him. And what these friends did is that they absolutized proverbial wisdom, and then they drew some unwarranted conclusions. Let's just think back to to what we saw from Eliphaz in chapter 4, verse 8. He said, According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. Now again, there's there's wisdom in that. You, You reap what you sow. But what Eliphaz is doing, actually, is that he takes the proverbial nature of what he was saying and he turns it on its head, as it were. On the one hand, it is true enough that those who sow trouble harvest it. But what Eliphaz and his friends were doing is that they reversed the order of things instead of starting with someone who is wicked and then drawing the conclusion that they will have trouble. They start at the point of someone who has the trouble and reason back and say, ah, the reason you have trouble is because you were wicked. You're harvesting trouble? That must mean you plowed trouble, you sowed trouble, therefore you are reaping it. They suppose that simply because the wicked do reap trouble, that means therefore the only reason that anyone could ever reap trouble is because they have been wicked. And Lord willing, as we'll see in future weeks, these friends not only spoke in these proverbial tones implying that Job was wicked, they actually called him onto the carpet and said, you are wicked. They accused him of sin. The result is that these friends who should have been there to comfort Job were in reality only tormenting him all the more. And we can see some of Job's responses to the arguments that his friends made in regard to this proverbial wisdom. You see it some in chapters 9, 16, 19, and 21. And let's, let's look at just a little bit of those. We're not going to read those entire chapters, but... Let's look at a little bit of those. Let's look at uh, Job 9. So flip, flip with me uh, to chapter 9. Bildad has given a, uh, an address to, to Job, kind of a proverbial sort. And uh, Job says in chapter 9, verse 2, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be right before God? Job recognizes the truth of this proverbial wisdom that his friends are giving to him, that his friends are espousing before him. But Job also recognizes that man is sinful, that God is in charge, and that God can do what he pleases. Now let's flip over to to Job chapter 16. Uh, Eliphaz, uh, in 
in my uh, reckoning from 17 through 35 of chapter 15 is, is kind of one of these proverbial wisdom sections. And Job replies at the end of it. He says, uh, he says there, uh, 16.2, I have heard many such things. Sorry, comforters, are you all? Is there no limit to windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth. And the solace of my lips could lessen your pain. Job says that he could play the game as good as they could. Or again, verse 5, perhaps he could actually strengthen them. Perhaps he could actually help them instead of continually tearing them down. Let's look at chapter 19. After another uh, proverbial speech by Bildad in chapter 18, Job speaks in chapter 19. Then Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me, and you are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. If indeed you vaunt yourselves against me and prove my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has put darkness on my paths. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. Job says his comforters are sorry. They're not doing anything to help. God has treated him like an enemy and Job can't pinpoint the reason why any of this is happening. And all that his friends are doing is just tormenting him. And then in chapter 21, Job puts before his friends a counter-example. And so Job here in chapter 21 brings out the example of a wicked man who actually thrives on the earth. And all, you know, all of the proverbial wisdom is that if you're wicked... You're, you're done for. Your life is going to be really bad. Job points out, chapter 21, that there are actually some wicked men who live quite well here in the world. What do we do with that? Uh, let's look at uh, 21, starting in verse 7. He says, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, and also become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. His ox mates without fail, his, calves, his cow calves and does not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock, and their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp, and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity, and suddenly they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain if we entreat him? Behold, their prosperity is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Or does their calamity fall on them? Does God apportion destruction in his anger? Are they straw before the wind and like chaff which the storm carries away? You say, 
God stores a man's iniquity for his son. Let God repay him so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is cut off? What Job is is talking about here in chapter 21 is that sometimes you have these, these wicked men who live outwardly prosperous lives. Sometimes the wicked live well and at ease. And this, if you, if you think about it, this was, this was Asaph's trouble in Psalm 73, was that, was that he, he sees this, this wicked man, and he's getting all the good stuff, and meanwhile Asaph is trying to be godly, and he's getting all the bad stuff. It's the same problem that Job is encountering here. And the point of what we're trying to consider here tonight is that proverbial nature of wisdom, while having its place, is not always borne out in the nature of things as they actually occur. There are examples that show the limits of proverbial wisdom and therefore prove the folly of reasoning backwards from the outcome back to the reason for that outcome. Remember, that's, that's what Job's friends were doing. They were saying, ah, you're having trouble, therefore you must have sown trouble and iniquity to begin with. That's why you're in the situation you are now. What we need to do is to recognize the truth of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 8.14, where he said, There is futility which is done on earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, the outward circumstances of affluence or affliction don't necessarily, absolutely, have bearing on whether someone has lived righteously or wickedly. You can't tell by the outcome, always, whether someone has been righteous or wicked. And this, so it seems, would have been news to Job's friends. Now, why is all of this important to observe and to take to heart? Well, probably more could be said than I will say tonight, but I want to direct your attention tonight to three areas of relevance for this. First, it's good to know the limits of proverbial wisdom as we take stock of our own lives. When things are going well for us, we shouldn't automatically jump to the assumption that all is well between us and the Lord. All might be well. But you can't automatically make that assumption based on outward occurrences. Sometimes in the national life of Israel, things went pretty well for the nation, despite their godlessness. Uh, The northern kingdom, the ten tribes of of Israel, during the days of the divided kingdom, had a very prosperous uh, time during the reign of Jeroboam II. He reigned for, for a very long time, I think 41 years if my memory is correct, and nevertheless, he was a bad king. The nation was not, uh, was not doing well, spiritually speaking, even though outwardly they were prosperous. And the same goes for when things are going poorly or when everything in life seems messy. We might be tempted to think that reasoning from the effect back to the cause, things are messy now, therefore we must have brought this on ourselves by some sin. And maybe we have. Maybe. But then again, maybe not. 
We have to scratch below the surface in order to tell for certain. We need to examine our own hearts and our own lives in the light of Scripture, not necessarily in the light of the outcome. We don't look at the outcome and say, okay, uh, is, is my life good or bad based on the good or bad circumstances that are happening to me now? That's, that's not the right question to ask. The question to ask is, am I living godly? Am I trusting in Christ, seeking to repent of my sin, or am I running headlong into sin? That's, that's the question we need to ask, not, uh, not simply look at the circumstances and then try to evaluate life based on that. The words of Jesus in John 7.24 have broad application, and certainly in this area as well. Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We have to do that all across the board and here as well. Judge with righteous judgment, not according to appearance. His friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, were simply judging by appearance and reasoning back to the cause for that appearance. We can't do that. We want to know the limits of proverbial wisdom for our own benefit, And secondly, we should also know the limits of proverbial wisdom as we interact with others. Job's friends here were undeservedly harsh toward him. To quote James Durham again, they carry on this with rough and uncharitable expressions toward Job who should have been dealt with more tenderly. Proverbial wisdom is good for us to know, and a lot of times it will prove right But when we're sitting with someone whose life has just fallen apart, we need to be patient, we need to listen, sometimes we need to be silent, sometimes we need to ask questions before we seek to declare to them what their problem is and what the solution ought to be. We need to remember, sometimes it happens to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked, as in the case of Job. He's a righteous man, godly man, his life unravels and falls apart. Sometimes, though, it happens to the wicked according to the deeds of the righteous. Think again, Psalm 73, you have this, this wicked man who uh, is outwardly blessed, outwardly prosperous. Think of what Job says there in Job 21. And so we have to recognize that we need to speak with insight and with grace into every situation. We need to recognize that every situation we encounter is going to be different. We have to avoid making assumptions and jumping to what might at first appear to be a reasonable conclusion. Job's friends were making assumptions. Job's friends here were making conclusions. And they caused grief to their friend and ultimately exposed themselves to the anger of God, as, as the end of the book makes clear. The Lord said that Job's friends have not spoken right of him, as Job did. And we don't, we don't want to do that. Instead, we have a commandment in Ephesians 4.29 to let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. And when we think of unwholesome words, we, we often think of, of curses or, uh, or you know, intentional put-downs or something of that nature. But sometimes... An unwholesome word can be cloaked, shall we say, with wisdom, right? Job's, Job's friends here were speaking unwholesome words to him because they were, they were taking true things and using them to Im- imply something that was not true about Job. 
Our calling is to speak only such words as are good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Job's friends were not doing that. We need to be doing that. And thirdly, we need to be aware of the exceptions to proverbial wisdom because our salvation depends on this exception. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the only fully and truly, completely righteous and holy man to ever live. And yet, what kind of life did he live here on earth? A life of suffering? A life filled with grief? As he went to the cross for our sins, it was then in the fullest sense that it was happening to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. Chief priests said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The chief priests were operating in the same mold and mentality as Job's friends. Basically, if Jesus is a really godly man, this should not be happening. Let God get him down now off the cross if Jesus is who he says he is. But Jesus was the holiest of men, dying on the cross under the wrath and curse of God. And blessed be God, he did this so that it might happen to us, the wicked, according to the deeds of the righteous. Isn't this the glory of 2 Corinthians 5.21? That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see what I mean? Our salvation is tied to the exceptions to the rule of proverbial wisdom. That it happened to the righteous according to the deeds of the wicked. So that it might happen to us, the wicked, according to the deeds of the righteous, that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. So we better be familiar with the exceptions to the rule of proverbial wisdom and live and act accordingly for our own sake, for the good of others, and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that indeed it did happen to Christ according to the deeds of the wicked so that it might happen to us according to the deeds of the righteous, that we might be blessed, that we might be made righteous, that we might be made holy in your sight because of Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would not take your truth and misapply it, misinterpret it, and use it to badger those who need comfort and help. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rightly divide your holy word so that we might Speak such words as are good for edification according to the needs of the moment to give grace to those who hear. We ask your blessing upon us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.